Will you turn now to the Word of God, and we'd like to read this afternoon the third letter of John. The third letter of John. If you were here this morning, of course, you know that we dealt with the second letter of John, and now this afternoon we'd like to look at this third letter of John, page 1200, and you really should not need to be told the page number, right? Uh, 1213. It's at the end of the... uh, Bible, obviously, and you should know the order by now. But anyway, let's listen here to God as he speaks to us through his word in the third letter of John. The elder to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth. Beloved, I pray that all may go well with you and that you may be in good health as it goes well with your soul. For I rejoice greatly when the brothers came and testified to your truth, as indeed you are walking in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. Beloved, it is a faithful thing you do in all your efforts for these brothers, strangers as they are, who testify to your love before the church. You will do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God. For they have gone out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Therefore, we ought to support people like these, that we may be fellow workers for the truth. I have written something for the, to the church, but Diotrephes, who likes to put himself first, does not acknowledge our authority. So if I come, I will bring up what he is doing, talking wicked nonsense against us. And not content with that, he refuses to welcome the brothers and also stops those who want to and puts them out of the church. Beloved, do not imitate evil, but imitate good. Whoever does good is from God. Whoever does evil has not seen God. Demetrius has received the good testimony from everyone and from the truth itself. We also add our testimony, and you know that our testimony is true. I had much to write to you, but I would rather not write with pen and ink. I hope to see you soon, and we will talk face to face. Peace be to you. The friends greet you. Greet the friends, each by name. So far, this beautiful letter, inspired by God, written by the Apostle John. May he add his blessing to our consideration of it briefly here this afternoon. This morning, people of God, I began by noting with you that there are five books in the Bible which are so short, they are not even divided into chapters. You remember the ones that they are? The one, there's one in the Old Testament, the prophecy of Obadiah. And the other four are all in the New Testament, all letters, Philemon, Jude, 2 John, and 3 John. And 2 John and 3 John are the shortest of these. 2 John contains only 13 verses. And 3 John before us this afternoon, contains 14 or 15 verses. I realize I said this morning that our translation in the ESV, or that I said this morning that it was 14, but the ESV version says 15. And I wonder if some of you caught that. The King James Version and the New King James Version and the NIV all indicate that 3 John has 14 verses, while the ESV that we use here and the NESV, the New American Standard Version, indicate it as 15 verses. 
Now that doesn't mean that those last two translations have added a new verse or added words to the scriptures. They simply divided the translators for a reason I do not know. They divided verse 14 in the older translations into two verses. And so they have 14 and 15. That's a minor issue, I realize. But let me clarify this too, which is not of major importance as well. Let's realize that the original books of the Bible had no chapters and no verse divisions. Chapters and verse divisions were all added centuries later. 12th century in France, I think the first English version, English translation was in the 1500s that had verses and chapters for the first time. And they were simply added, chapters and verses, to make it easier for Bible readers and students to locate particular passages in the scriptures. So if you really want to determine what is the shortest verse book of the Bible, maybe you students here can keep that in mind for a little trivia thing. If you want to really remember or determine what is the shortest book of the Bible, you should not go by the verses, but you should go by the number of words that they contain in these books. Well, that's on the uh, simpler side here, but we move on to more important things, obviously, as we hear God's word this afternoon, and now turn to the content of this third letter of John. And first of all, as we read it just a moment ago, you may have noticed that it has some obvious similarities to John's second letter. Let me just point those out briefly. This morning we noted that 2 John, did not, in John there, did not even mention his own name as the author of this letter, of his letter. He only identified himself in 2 John as the elder. And notice he does the same thing here in 3 John. He starts out the elder to the beloved Gaius. Once again, remember that that term, elder, indicates both, I think, John's age but also his spiritual position or his office in the church. And both of these were to be respected by the church, by his readers, just as we should respect Christians who have been Christians longer than we have, those who are older and more mature in the faith, as well as those who hold offices in the church of Christ. In addition, John was also an apostle, He had seen and walked with Jesus himself. In fact, he is the one referred to in the Gospel of John as the disciple whom Jesus loved, which indicates that he had a special bond of intimacy with Jesus and Jesus with him. Actually, Jesus and John were cousins, likely cousins. Now, we don't read much about John's apostolic ministry in the book of Acts after the apostle Paul came on the scene, We do know, of course, that from the book of Revelation, that John, when he was older, was exiled to the island of Patmos in the Mediterranean Sea, or the Aegean Sea, rather, where he received the visions that he recorded in the book of Revelation. And that book, many scholars believe, was written around A.D. 95. So almost at the end of the first century, when John was already a very old man, But John, you must realize, did not die on the island of Patmos. He was released again from his exile, and he was allowed to return again to the mainland of Asia Minor. 
And there, according to what we read in uh, ancient, non-biblical sources, John served in the church of Ephesus for some time before he died. One of the ancient church fathers who knew John wrote that when the aged apostle could no longer walk, but had to be carried to the church services, he used to repeat again and again, little children love one another, as he wrote also in his letters. He was indeed the elder to the churches. And then there's another similarity that you may have noticed between 2 John and 3 John. As we read through this third letter this afternoon, did you observe again how strongly two words were emphasized, truth and love? Those are the same words which are also common in 2 John. 2 John began to the, the elder to the elect lady and her children whom I love in the truth. While 3 John similarly begins the elder to the beloved Gaius whom I love in truth. And then, in verses virtually identical, John writes in his second letter, verse 4, I rejoice greatly to find some of your children walking in the truth. While he writes in 3 John, verses 3 and 4, For I rejoice greatly when the brothers came and testified to your truth, as indeed you are walking in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. So in both of these short letters, the Holy Spirit through John, expresses a real concern and interest that we, as God's children, walk in the truth and love one another in the truth. At the same time, there are also some differences between these two short letters of John. And one obvious one is that 3 John is addressed to a specific person who is mentioned by name and also refers to several other persons mentioned by name. And pretty soon we will see what John is to say to and about these individuals. And the second difference between the two letters is that while 2 John urges Christians, including us today, to be aware of and to shun false teachers who do not speak the truth, 3 John urges us to welcome and to support those servants of God who do proclaim the truth of the gospel. 2 John says... If you love the truth, then you must hate all falsehood and oppose those who propagate it. Do not have anything to do, he means, with false teachers. In fact, do not even welcome them into your house. By the way, let me make a brief comment here as to something I said this morning, because an astute listener asked me after the service this morning, is that word house used here by 2 John Maybe not a reference to the church, rather than to the house, the kind that you and I live in. When he was talking here about not welcoming those who oppose the truth. And I made a comment that when somebody comes to our house, like a Jehovah's Witness, for example, to spread the gospel, you must not welcome them, even though we must preach the gospel or speak the gospel to them. But because Second John was written to the church, as we noted as well, most likely, was he maybe referring by house, as the Bible does, to the house of the Lord? <clears throat> and I think that's a good point. And I'm glad that I heard it and, and I agree with it. And also because that word house, you see, is also used here by John, no doubt, because the church in the early centuries did not meet in buildings like these. They didn't have church buildings. 
They couldn't afford church buildings. They always met in one another's house. So I'm grateful, by the way, for careful listeners who keep us ministers uh, and give us some better insights at times. Of course, it's true, too, that we as families must also not welcome those who seek to lead us astray in our own homes or schools or other venues of life. However, the emphasis in 3 John is not so much on those who resist or preach a false gospel, not to welcome them into our midst, but 3 John emphasizes that we have to work together. We have to promote the gospel together, the truth that God has given to us. That's why the sermon title is what it is, Working Together for the Truth. That's why I also chose the eighth verse as a theme text, where John writes, therefore we ought to support people like these, meaning fellow workers, gospel preachers, that we may be fellow workers for the truth. That's the key message of 3 John. So let's ask them, well, how must that be done? How can we work together for the truth? And I think one of the best ways to answer that is to look at the three persons whom John mentions here by name in this short letter and what he says or writes about them. Two of them were faithful, devoted servants of Christ. The other one was actually, not a, was actually also a false leader in the church. Two promoted the truth of the gospel, one hindered the proclamation of the gospel. And let's look now at each of these persons in turn, what we can learn about them from John's letter. The first one he mentions by name is a man by the name of Gaius. In fact, he was the person to whom this letter was initially addressed. John writes in verse 1, The elder to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth. Yes, John loved this fellow Christian. Notice that he calls him the beloved. And John used that expression, the beloved, three other times in this letter. If you look at your Bible, you'll also notice that how he begins verse 2 and 5, verse 11, all with the term of address, beloved. It's really in the Greek language, the word agapete, which comes from the word for love, the Greek word for love that you've heard, agape. And you know, that's still the way that we often address Christians today, especially in the context of worship services. Pastors may address the congregation as beloved in the Lord or beloved in Christ. Sounds a little old-fashioned, perhaps, uh, to those of a younger age, but it really has a, a beautiful reference. That is a double reference. It means the persons addressed are beloved by God, by Christ. And therefore, they also are beloved or loved by fellow believers in Christ. John loved Gaius, just as Christ loved Gaius, with an agape love. That is a self-sacrificing love. The love extolled, for example, in 1 Corinthians 13 as the greatest of all virtues. But why more exactly did John express his love for Gaius? Who was this man? Obviously, he was a Christian well known to John and one who belonged to a church that John was acquainted with. Now, there are several Gaiuses mentioned in the New Testament, but all of them in connection with the ministry of the Apostle Paul. Gaius was really a common name in the Roman Empire, in the Roman world, like our names, John or James or Paul. And so we cannot really determine who this particular Gaius was, and it doesn't matter either. Rather, what accounts is what kind of person he was, the kind of Christian he was. And listen to one key trait that he had mentioned by John in verse 3. For I rejoice greatly, writes John, when the brothers came and testified to your truth, as indeed you are walking in the truth. 
I think that phrase, your truth, to describe Gaius is probably not, at least for me, the best translation. It's actually God's truth. God's truth that became Gaius' truth, that he embraced, that he made his own. Gaius was reputed to be a man who loved the truth of God, who loved the gospel as much as it also lived in him. It was part of his life. It was it vibrated in his soul. And what an important quality to have for every Christian. Gaius was not blown about by every wind of doctrine. He didn't fall for the newest fangled interpretations and ideas being circulated in his time by the theologians of his time. <clears throat> he didn't try to make God's truth conform to the accepted theories and popular notions of the age. <clears throat> Gaius was committed to the truth. He was anchored in that solid rock of God's word. That was his treasure. I've heard of Christians, maybe you have too, in places of the world who have been and continue to be severely persecuted. Perhaps they're languishing even now in prisons. And if they have a Bible, that Bible is taken away from them. But many have, have that Bible, that truth, burned into their hearts. Even if it's taken from them, it's in their hearts. It cannot be taken away from there. It makes me ask, do you treasure God's word that much, that it's in your heart, and that it always remains there? Is that the knowledge that you, indeed, that guides your life? Because it says also that he was walking in it. He lived in it. There are some Christians, too, we know, who are all concerned about doctrine. They emphasize doctrinal purity in the church, but then they don't live by the truth themselves in their own lives. That's hypocrisy. That was not the case with Gaius. God's word was the lamp to his feet and the light on his path. And so no, no wonder John exclaims in verse 4, he says, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. I think John was referring here to adult Christians who are children of God, as well as younger Christians who were children of the Heavenly Father. And that's, yes, isn't this what all Christian parents most desire for their children? Isn't this what gives you and me the greatest of all joys? You know, we're happy when our children do well educationally in their pursuits that way, or if they're talented and they're gifted in some area, or maybe they establish successful careers, or they do very well in some other endeavor of life. Maybe they've made a name for themselves. Maybe you have children who have become CEOs of a company or founded multi-million dollar businesses or become civic leaders, well-respected in the community, and you as parents were proud of them. But nothing, nothing can compare to our joy when we know that they are walking in the truth that they are committed to Christ. They're living by his word. For one can gain the whole world and lose his own soul. But to know Christ, to live by his truth, is to gain eternal life. So that's always and ought to be our chief delight. <clears throat> I rejoice, I have no greater joy, than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. <clears throat> and it's God's delight as well of course. <clears throat> but that was not all Gaius was commended for. 
he wasn't only committed to the truth and walking in it, but listen to verses 5 and 6. Still addressing Gaius, John writes, Beloved, it is a faithful thing you do in all your efforts. For these brothers, strangers as they are, who testified to your love before the church. Yes, because he was committed to the truth, Gaius was also faithful in helping, in supporting, in welcoming those Christian brothers who were proclaiming the truth of the gospel. And what exactly did Gaius do for them? Well, you have to understand a bit the predicament of of Christian travelers and missionaries in the Roman world of the first century. One blessing of the New Testament age was that Christians could travel all over the well-built roads that crisscrossed the the Roman Empire. They could go to one place, from one place to another without much hindrances, no barriers. That was a great advantage to the spread of the gospel in the early centuries. It had circulated everywhere in in the empire. But one difficulty that traveling preachers and missionaries had was to find lodging. The comforts and the conveniences of our modern motels and hotels are, were unknown in those, in those times. And ancient inns were notoriously dirty and unsanitary, and innkeepers had a bad reputation. They could not always be trusted. Many inns were houses of ill repute. And therefore, Christian travelers sought lodging and hospitality with fellow Christians. And it was expected of church members to welcome their brothers and sisters in the Lord into their homes, to send them on their way again, rested and nourished, especially if they were missionaries and teachers of the gospel. However, such uh, such hospitality could also be abused. A false teacher claiming to be a Christian might come along and seek lodging in a Christian's home. Or a person pretending to be a Christian might take advantage of the free room and board offered by a true believer. I, I always remember when I was a young boy, growing up in, the up, in upstate New York, a, a man came who, from somewhere who needed lodging. <clears throat> he was not a tramp, but, and he was actually a pretty decent-looking fellow, and he claimed to be a Christian. <clears throat> he said he was looking for work in the area, and he seemed to be serious, and, and he came to the church. I remember uh, my dad and so on, and uh, talking to him, and, and some people put him up for a few weeks till he could find a place to live. He came to the church at least uh, for several months, and he always needed some money, so the church members would give him some money, a few hundred dollars even. And then one week, he was gone. Nobody knew where he went. He was gone. He had just pretended to be a Christian. He'd gone to the church for a while to obtain lodging and to get some money, but he was gone. But now in 3 John, the apostle commends Gaius for his hospitality that he showed to Christian teachers who were genuine brothers in Christ, even though it says they were complete strangers to him. He took them in and provided for their needs And he sent them on their way refreshed. That was his way of supporting the ministry of the gospel. Because as verse 7 indicates, these itinerant teachers of the gospel who had gone out to proclaim Christ did not expect to receive any help from unbelievers. Verse 7 says, For they have gone out for the sake of the name, the name of Christ, 
accepting nothing from the Gentiles. They did not seek their support from unbelievers. And for that reason, John writes in verse 8, therefore we ought to support people like these, that we may be fellow workers for the truth. It's Christians who must provide support for those bringing the gospel. And now today, of course, we live in an entirely different situation. Teaching missionaries or teacher missionaries who bring the gospel make their arrangements to go somewhere, stay somewhere ahead of time where they're made for them. Uh, Churches may provide lodging for them in motels or hotels. Even so, God would have us to show hospitality to those who share the true faith and gospel that we hold dear. They may be complete strangers to us personally, and yet we should welcome them, provide for them in the ways we can. It's one of the marks of a true church. We live such individualistic lives in our times that some Christians don't care to have anything to do with other Christians. But when we love God's truth, we want to show kindness to those who also love the truth. And one way is by the hospitality that we show. I think of what God said in Hebrews 13, verse 2, do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. The word angels, as you know, means messengers. Some Old Testament saints, like Abraham, entertained angels from God. But today, God's saints can also entertain messengers from God, human messengers, and provide for them in their needs. It's one way that we can all be fellow workers for the truth. That was the practice that Gaius was commended for in this short letter of John. And may we follow his example. Then there's another person mentioned in this third letter of John who was not at all so noble. In fact, here we also hear of a man who worked against the truth. And that man's name was Diotrephes. John writes about him in verses 9 and 10. And what kind of person was he according to John? Well, unlike Gaius, Diotrephes did not love the truth as much as he loved something else. And what was that something else? Listen to verse 9 where John writes, I have written something to the church, but Diotrephes, who likes to put himself first, does not acknowledge our authority. Notice Diotrephes liked to put himself first. He wanted to be number one in the church. In colloquial speech, he wanted to be the top dog. He wanted to run the show of the church. He wanted to do it for his own prestige, for his own glory. He craved the power of leadership. It could well be that Diotrephes was a leader in the church where Gaius also belonged. But he was a very different person, a different man from Gaius. He was proud of his position and longed for the praise of men. And he was very jealous for his power not about to have anyone tell him what to do. That's why John writes, Diotrephes, who likes to put himself first, does not acknowledge our authority. John is speaking there as an apostle, as one who had been given the authority by Christ, one of the founders, as it were, of the early church, one of the pillars of the church, well-known throughout the church, respected as the elder. That didn't matter to Diotrephes. That made him even more wary of John so much Diotrephes wanted to be first. 
Verse 10 indicates that Diotrephes even spoke malicious words against or about John. John writes, so if I come, I will bring up what he is doing, talking wicked nonsense against us. And when Christian teachers came his way, Diotrephes would not welcome them or show them hospitality as Gaius did. In fact, those who did that, he even put outside the church. I wonder how he could do that, but he must have had a lot of clout. People were afraid of him. And so he worked against the truth and those who proclaimed the truth because he loved to be first. It's always a danger for a church leader. We live in an age of megachurches, large congregations led by noted pastors, often wielding tremendous authority. They are typically strong, charismatic personalities. And Some of them, I think, don't love the truth as much as themselves. They relish the fame and the power of being first and on top. They forget what our Lord Jesus taught. He will be first among you shall be last, and the last shall be first. In fact, all church leaders, pastors, elders, deacons, must always remember they are called to lead, to lead, but not to dominate. They must guide the church but always as the servants of Christ and of his people. Because Christ also came, first of all, to serve, not to be served. When he came to earth, he said in Mark 10, verse 44, and whoever will be first among you must be slave of all. Our aim, what is our aim? As servants of Christ, always to work together for the truth. That's the truth that will march on unhindered. And so John warns Diotrephes that he will come and expose his false motives and his domineering ways and his malicious slander that the church might take note, action, and take action against this leader who was working not as a fellow worker, but as a worker against the truth. And further, John tells Gaius in verse 11, Beloved, meaning Gaius, do not imitate evil, but good. Whoever does good is from God. Whoever does evil has not seen God. And then John immediately brings up another person in this short letter. He mentions a third man by name. And this man, like Gaius, but unlike Diotrephes, was a true believer who, again, we would do well to imitate. And his name was Demetrius. There's just a brief reference to him in verse 12. Demetrius, writes John, has received a good testimony from everyone and from the truth itself. We also add our testimony, and you know that our testimony is true. Now, who was Demetrius? Again, we know very little of anything about him personally. There are some who think that he may have been the bearer of this letter which John wrote to Gaius, and that John was therefore recommending him to Gaius as a worthy Christian, as a man that he could trust. In any case, notice that Demetrius had a good reputation among his fellow believers. They all spoke well of him. And the apostle John added his commendation as well. But there was something more important that spoke well of Demetrius. The truth itself, writes John, commended him. It wasn't just what others said about Demetrius. What the truth said about him, that is God's truth, 
what God's word testified well of about him. You see, it isn't finally what man says about us that counts. What God says about us that counts. It's what the truth of God's word shows or indicates about us that commends us or condemns us. When our lives are compared to God's word, when our words and deeds and lives conform to that word, that's what counts. Does your life, does your conduct accord with the truth of God himself? How important that is. That's the the key testimony that, that we are called to give in the church and in the world. We must all show forth the truth of the gospel in us by the way we live, by our conduct, by what we say and do. Living for Jesus, a life that is true, striving to please him in all that I do. I think that still is the motto of the Calvinist cadets. How critical it is in our age where truth and certainly God's truth is so pervasively ignored and denied. We're even claiming that there is such a thing as absolute truth that we must live by is derided. May the truth of God himself testify well of us as fellow workers for Christ and his church. Then we are promoting the glory and honor of our Lord and of our King. He who alone is the way, the truth, and the life. That's the message for God's people by the Holy Spirit in the letter of Third John. Amen. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you for reminding us again tonight, for speaking to us again tonight through this beautiful portion of your word. And we thank you, O Lord, that once again we, as the beloved, that is, those who have been loved by Christ, by his everlasting love, and also love one another and are loved by one another, that we could then be reminded again of the preciousness of living by the truth, of also promoting that truth, of working together for the advancement of the truth and of your church and kingdom as it proclaims the truth of the gospel. Thank you that we here can be fellow workers with Christ and with one another, advancing the cause of your word and of your kingdom. And we pray that we may thereby also indicate before the world our priorities, that we want to walk with Christ and for Christ and live for him each day, the life that is true. Lord, we pray that that may be clear from our lives each and every day, that that may be the testimony of your word about us. So we pray that you'll work in us by your spirit. We know that we fail oftentimes to do that which your word tells us to do. We have many weaknesses that do cleave to us, but we pray for your Holy Spirit to give us that strength to live in obedience to your word, to walk and love the truth of your word and the gospel. In Jesus' name we pray this. Amen.